evening, everybody. Uh, my name is Ryan Scherzinger, Senior Outreach Associate for APA. Welcome to Tuesdays at APA. Uh, tonight, I'm pleased to introduce Sarah Jo Peterson. Uh, Sarah Jo Peterson has spent over 20 years in urban planning with experience in government, academia, and the nonprofit sector. Uh, she received uh, an MS in urban and regional planning from the University of Wisconsin-Madison and a PhD in uh, American history from Yale University. Uh, her new book, Planning the Homefront, uh, which is the subject of her presentation this evening, uh, just won the Lewis Mumford Prize from the Society for American City and Regional Planning History, so congratulations on that award. Uh, and before we start, I uh, just ask that you please hold all the questions until the end of the presentation. We'll, we'll have plenty of time uh, to hear from you. Uh, now, please join me in welcoming tonight's speaker, Sarah Jo Peterson. Thank you very much. So, well, thank you very much. I'm very excited to be here. This is um, what I mean. What I'm mostly excited about is that I'm finally presenting this work to an audience of planners. I've spent a lot of time talking to historians and academics, but not actual practicing planners. And and so, what I'm going to do today is is discuss this the this. The study is from the book. The examples I'm going to give is from the book. But what I really want to do is spark thinking about how does this apply today. So that's what I want to do is closing, close the, oh, there it goes, <laughs> the mysteries of PowerPoint. That, um, that, uh, and when I started this project, I, I started it because I got interested in a model city that was being planned for outside of Detroit, Michigan during the war. And, but when it, and every time I kept looking at it, looking at it, I found a lot of planning going on. There's plenty of plans and studies, and everybody has the 19-point program for this and the 11-point plan for that, and maps that we'd all recognize as actually fairly sophisticated analysis going on, considering the mapping techniques they had. So there's clearly a lot of planning going on, but I didn't really know, but it didn't sort of meet any of our models. It's certainly not comprehensive planning, and it's certainly not that um, it, you know, that doesn't fit some sort of nice flow chart where the federal government has a study and then everybody else implements it. And so finally I came up with this idea that the best term I could come up with and I was kind of pulling from the air is I called it participatory planning. And that's what I really like to talk about today is really about this model of participatory planning that the federal government used to mobilize the home front for World War II. So I'm going to talk a little bit about why urban planning is even relevant for World War II and then talk about how the participatory planning worked on the home front in a really general way. And then I'm going to give you three stories from my book on Willow Run that sort of provide the evidence that this was actually happening. And then finally close with a discussion on participatory planning and today. That, and I may said I really hope to get to that piece of it, which I hope to be very participatory in the theme of participatory planning. That, uh, so... So why is urban planning necessary for World War II mobilization? And sort of five things come up. The first is migration. That during, during the early 40s, millions of Americans moved. They moved from rural areas to cities, and they moved out of the south and to California and to the northeastern cities. And their families, because the single men have all been, by and large, drafted. So these are families who move. That, and it's a time of great sub suburbanization, that one of the only thing I could find that everyone agreed on was that urban congestion needed to be avoided. So when they're building these new plants, they, they look outside of our urban areas. Sometimes they look to Kansas. In some places, they look to 
sub suburbia. So you end up with the example, just the, the Willowbone Bomber plant is 25 miles from Detroit. They thought that was a good thing. That uh, there is a consensus on housing standards at this time, which, that, that industrial workers who are the people who are actually mobilizing for war, that they deserve adequate housing. That this is across the board, except for the military. Unfortunately, I'm not going to be able to go into the military and how they worked very hard to gum up this consensus, but it is part of the book. That, um, but at the consensus ends at the definition of adequate, but that you at least got there, that there was going to be a conversation about industrial workers having adequate housing is part of why urban planning is relevant. And then this is a particularly exciting moment for innovations in housing and community, which we'll, I will sort of touch at the edges of today, but I won't, but it gets fuller, more fully developed in the book. And that's, they're looking at really innovative, for them, ways to design housing and design communities. This is, you know, Greenbelt, Maryland plus. They're looking at interesting ways to finance housing. They're excited about different ways of organizing tenure around housing, and even just how to construct housing. You know, in some ways, little known story, William Levitt learns how to mass produce housing during World War II, building housing for the Navy. So, and then finally, it's because there's just a consensus at the federal level that land use is a state and local responsibility, and that they are going to try to respect this while they mobilize the country for war. This is why urban planning is crucial to understanding, in the end, how the country mobilizes for World War II. But the lens of planning also offers an, something else. When you look at planning, you realize what happens before December 7th, 1941 can be just as important as what happens after December 7th, 1941. And there's actually a lot of planning that starts happening in 1940 and 1941. And the, the laws that they actually pass, the federal government passes to deal with housing and to deal with community facilities are all passed in 1940 and 1941. So it backs up our understanding. That, and so looking at how we ended up with a bomber plant 25 miles from Detroit, it starts with this early stages of planning. In May 16, 1940, President Roosevelt requests, he says the military needs 50,000 planes. He makes a public announcement, a big speech, 50,000 planes. This is an absolutely astonishing number. This is more planes than the United States has constructed since Kitty Hawk. And not only that, he wants an aircraft industry capable of producing 50,000 planes a year. So this is what starts the ball rolling. That to be able to do this, this incredible crazy number that FDR just thrown out that he wants, that they have to, it's going to require mass production and it's going to require the expertise of the auto industry. That's just going to have to happen. That's the only way it's going to happen. So in late October 1940, the army goes to the different auto industries in, in Detroit and asks each of them to sponsor a bombing, bombing airplane. They haven't even called them bombers yet. A bombing airplane. And they ask Ford to sponsor the B-24. And Ford says, by they sponsor, they mean make the parts for it. So that Consolidated, who owns the design to B-24, can do the final assembly in their plants that they're planning in Texas and Oklahoma and in California, places where you might want to fly a plane 20, 12 months a year. That, but the executives of the Ford Motor Company say, no, we don't want to be a bits and parts supplier to the aircraft industry. We want It's complete planes or nothing. That's the argument they make. It's complete planes for nothing. 
So that's how you end up with a bomber plant outside of Detroit. That, um, that, and, let's see, that, uh, right, and by January 1942, the bomber plant is now, they're guessing, is going to be employing, projecting 100,000 workers. That, and by September 42, you have the first B-24 leaving the assembly line. So that's sort of, that, uh, the pl plant is massive, mile, a mile long worth of assembly line, 67 acres under one roof. When it's built, it's the largest manufacturing plant in the world. It gets surpassed the next year by a GM engine factory, but for a while it is. And the target that everyone agrees on is that they will be, this bomber plant will be producing a bomber an hour. At the time, the industry best is a bomber a day. So that's the challenge of the bomber plant. That, and because they are complete planes or nothing, they need an airport. So that increases the massive size of this facility. So it's where the plant ends up. This is a map of the Detroit metropolitan area with the 1941 incorporated boundaries. One of the first things you see is, wow, they already were fragmented into suburbia. <laughs> what, you can, what you can see is that all this space in here is already mostly rural sprawl. It's all been platted, dotted with houses. So that, um, so the bomber plant ends up here. So for here, this is Ann Arbor, this is Ypsilanti. Here, this is Ann Arbor, about 30,000 people at the time. Ypsilanti, about 12,000 people. Here's the bomber plant, here's the airport, and here's the county border between Washtenaw County, where Ann Arbor is the county seat, and Wayne County, where Detroit, which is way over here, is the main city. That in this map is one of the first planning maps prepared that I found. It was prepared of the Ypsilanti defense area by a planning practitioner at the University of Michigan. And what I find, he did a whole entire series of these, but what I find is fascinating is Detroit's not on the map. So, and the county, Washtenaw County, which is over here, only has 80,000 people in it. That, uh, so that sets up the planning challenge, as you can start to see what kind of urban planning challenge they're going to have here. That, um, so, so what do I mean by participatory planning? And what I mean by participatory planning is a process where the top-down engages the bottom-up. You know, there's definitely, the top-down is engaged around na these national goals, at some level, win the war. And the federal government sets objectives, produce bombers, in this case, a bomber an hour. That, and for implementation, what the federal government does is it issues contracts to industry, and it issues grants to local governments. These are all tools we're familiar with, grants to local governments. But one thing that is not familiar with is it takes, starts to take control of construction materials. These construction materials controls come in slowly over 40 and 41, but by the time we're at war in 42, you basically can't build anything more than a large shed without getting a building permit from the federal government. And they do a lot of cajoling and threatening. And, they, and then one part I'm interested in as part of the participatory planning is this encouraging, even requiring bottom-up solutions. That, um, so, okay. So three, I'm going to talk about three planning stories now. We're moving to that phase of this. And I wanted to focus on showing that the three stories are designed to show that this is a pattern of federal behavior. 
it's a pattern of federal behavior similar to the negotiations that federal, the federal government had with Ford, where they said, build parts, and they said, no, complete planes are nothing. That's, an, uh, that's another example of this. That, uh, and it operated in a variety of ways and a variety of scales. That, uh, so story one, the battle for Bomber City. The big question here is where the bomber work, where are the workers going to come from? How are you going to get 100,000 people to this plant? That uh, solution one it comes out of a group, a group of what are called modern housers, the group of architects who are interested in modern housing ideas of the time. That um, they partner with the UAW, they partner with new dealers in the federal government, and their idea is that we need a model garden city of 10,000 units. Solution two comes out of the Michigan Highway Department. That, and they partner with the Ford Motor Company, and they, their vision is let's tether, let's use, build an express highway to tether this bomber plant to Detroit. And the workers will come from Detroit. The, the, both these two solutions that um, are from the period before war actually starts, and they actually are solutions that are in the ether before the bomber plant is announced. They are what so often sort of strangely happens in planning, we have solutions looking for problems. But in this case, they found, a, they found their problem. That, and then after the war begins, the local real estate industry comes up with its own solution, which is that the private sector should provide this housing in existing suburban areas. So I want to go through each of these a little more. And I've now switched solution one and solution two. This happens when you do these things late at night. But, um, but, um, but it does allow me to say that these both were solution one and solution two, or solution two and solution one, both were happening independently. They weren't in a conversation with each other at all, just arising sort of out of two different groups looking at this problem and proposing to the federal government a solution. That um, G. Donald Kennedy, the head of the Michi Michigan State Highway Commission, he finally got his law that allows him to build this, the Michigan's first expressway, and he's looking for money. And he has these plans to do it in Detroit, but the federal government's not interested in Detroit. The federal government's worried about the bomber plant. But this is part of his argument, that he is aware that he needs to argue that he doesn't want the housing near the plant. So he argues that the, bomb, that the highway will keep the workers in Detroit, keep them from creating a rural slum near the bomber plant. That's his argument, which is very different than we think of the argument for why we built highways. But that's his argument. Defense, the, the model city, which before the world is called Defense City, because they're not at war yet, that um, the, this comes from, it starts with the, a modern architect called Oskar Stonarov. He's from Philadelphia. He's been working with the hosiery workers in Philadelphia to deal with some housing plans for them. He has this idea, let's do this, let's do this big. We need a grand gesture. Let's do this big. Let's, let's build a model city. And he finds partners in the UAW. And he finds partners in a small housing program in the Federal Works Agency that is about cooperative, experimenting with cooperative housing techniques. And the cooperative housing technique they call, he, this group experiments with is called mutual home ownership, which is why, which is why when they finally they have this sort of moment where they get President Roosevelt to announce his endorsement of the idea of a model city at their big convention in November of 1941. And that's why it's well-planned, designed, and owned by defense workers. It's because of that partnership. 
that uh, this, is, this is the UAW celebrating Defense City, that um, promising a public living town, the charm of the American village of the last century, but a laboratory for post-war life. They have these ideas what they're going to achieve. But this is them also celebrating in front of a mock-up of what they think will be the model city. This is Oskar Sonarov. This is Walter Reusser, the second in charge. And this is R.J. Thomas, the president of the UAW. So that's the, the background of the model city. That solution three. Before the war is actually declared, the private real estate industry and the home building industry in the Detroit area just protests. They protest. They can be quite vigorous about their protests. They actually threaten an income tax strike until the government gets out of the home building business. But they're in protest mode. After the war, they rally around their solution. And, the, and they're not alone in this. They have support from the Michigan State Director of the Federal Highway Housing Administration. He's sort of the rallying point with the federal government. He leads them. He threatens them. He controls them. He brings them into meetings. Let's do this. Let's build this housing, so otherwise the government will. So those are our three solutions. That, uh, so, and they are about to collide with each other. That, uh, in February of 1942, President Roosevelt sends his uncle, Frederick Delano, who's also the chair of the National Resources Planning Board, sends him to New Detroit. And I know from the letters of invitation that he sends, he he's, his idea is, I'm going to bring everybody in a room, everybody important in a room, and hammer out a plan of action. That's what he writes in his letter. But by the time he gets there, He's, he basically has already totally backpedaled, and he said the federal government is just there to learn, because he's already caught on that this is really politically controversial. That, um, so you have some press, positive press in the, you know, some of the newspapers, I think maybe this is going to be good. But what's happened in the meantime is the local governments have formed the Regional Defense Planning Committee. These are mostly, it does include Detroit, but it's mostly the suburban governments. And they don't like the model city. They see it as a threat and a competitor to them. And they start saying why this model city idea is going to be so bad. This is one of their things, the post-war ghost city. And at the time, the UAW comes out swinging. They don't try to say, have any sort of compromise. They come out swinging and basically, I mean, would mean that a lot of bad housing would be vacant is like basically saying this model city will mean nobody's going to want to live in your suburbs. Nobody's going to want to live in Detroit. So that's the kind of tension that's going on when Delano's at that meeting. And the only thing is the sort of the state, the only sort of voice of reason is the state highway department and the Ford Motor Company who talk about the transportation needs and the why they need this highway. So Delano does this. He leaves. He, he gives up. He goes back. He endorses the highway and lets the rest of the war machinery figure out the rest because he can't solve this problem. That uh, round two. The in round one, the, the model city is just sort of floating over the Detroit metropolitan area. It doesn't have a home yet. In round two, it now has a location. And it's very important that it ends up not in Wayne County, the county with Detroit. It ends up just outside of Ypsilanti, right here. That, uh, so now we have a whole nother cast of characters, the leaders of Washtenaw County, who now realize that this is in their backyard. That 
In early May, the lead federal planner makes a big presentation and he starts getting protests back. And he doesn't respond particularly effectively that, uh, you know, that nobody really cared back then as they do now whether they've actually offended the town planner in their protest. <laughs> the Ford Motor Company declares that they're going to fight it by every legal method. This is actually walking back what they had been doing, which was fighting it by some questionable legal methods. In late May, after the proposal had started getting local protest, Henry Ford, for reasons only he knows, ordered his men to go, to go onto the housing site and pull up 700 surveyor stakes, that, um, which then pushed the Ford Motor Company to actually defend his action. And they came up with the protest of the, the model city. That, and the federal government really couldn't do anything about it because they hadn't transferred the title to the land. And the Ford Motor Company actually owned the land that this model city was going on. That, and, but his surveyor stake stunt got national attention to something that the country was already watching. And it ended up then you have hearings in the Senate on what should happen next. And this is the Washington County attorney commenting part of his testimony in front of the Senate of what's going to happen that this city will fail, it will be a repository for the flotsam and jetsam of humanity. And he went and questioned all the planning that had been done, that he had seen, and laid out his case for why it was going to fail. That, uh, so. Well, I'm missing a slide. All right. So, I am missing a slide. There's supposed to be a round three slide there. <laughs> round three. If the difference between round one and round two is the location, the difference between round, oh, wait a minute. There's, where's the slide? August 1942, the federal government does come out for a sum for all compromise. This is a fun part of the, not all of the expressway, but fun of the expressway. The private sector gets 10,000 units, but Half, that's their, what they have to do is to build half of them for rent. This is a big deal. They think they should only build home ownership housing. And the public housing is 5,000 units and the bomber city is at 2,500 units. So they actually, the federal government actually says yes. That, but the, the compromise that happens over the public housing is that there will be no more permanent public housing, not just for the Detroit area, but this is for the entire nation. This was the case that decided whether they would be, and that they're going to now build temporary public housing, which they mean by temporary housing that's about good for about 15 years before it no longer can meet its maintenance. But, uh, but it's very important for the federal government to have come out for this sum for all compromise because it's saying all of your solutions serve the war effort. All of your solutions about what should happen serve the war effort. So round three. So round three, they finally see the designs. This is what happens in round three. And in October 1942, the UAW asks that this be converted to temporary housing. And the federal government agrees. The question is why? Why would they do this? That, um, so, and luckily for me as the historian, the editors of the Architectural Forum did not agree. They called what they saw, the designs that they saw, the best guide to post-war planning we have yet produced. And because they liked them so much, they published them, which gives us an opportunity here to look at the designs 
and see, and I thought it would be kind of fun for you all to see if you can figure out what the UAW dislikes so much that 11 months after they celebrated their model city, they back off of it and dramatically sacrifice it to temporary housing in the war effort. So, a chance to look at it. This is the, um, the basic site plan with five neighborhoods. They only start with three. That, um, and, but what here is, this whole thing is, is designed to have a green belt around it. And the green belt is designed so that, so that, um, this, that rural sprawl does not infect the model city. That's what that's about. And to provide open space and everything else. But that looking at this, the, this, the, um, the downtown area was designed by Aero Saarinen. And it's a very Aero Saarinen kind of looking place. <laughs> and he's a Michigan architect, so that he's involved is not surprising. This is his site plan for the, the downtown area, where he has business and shopping in the middle, the high, the, uh, high school down here, the civic area up here, and lots of parking. The, uh, that's the civic center of this community. That, uh, this is one of the neighborhood units, there was three, that were got made all the way to design phase. And like them all, this was the Meyer and Wittersley, and like them all, they all have a school, elementary school in the middle, and then neighborhoods around. That this is the one by the neighborhood by Skidmore, Owings, Merrills, and Andrew, this predecessor to SOM. And here you can say how the green belt is to sort of infiltrate into the neighborhoods. And they did this weird thing where they called cul-de-sacs with their heads together. And they do that because they're trying to create the circulation and the ease of access of a grid system with the isolation of a cul-de-sac system. That's their idea. That, uh, and then this is a picture of their housing. And this housing, it's all row houses or apartments. And it all, and this is actually the back door. The front doors of all these housings, as in Greenbelt, actually, Greenbelt, Maryland, if you've seen this, although they've now all reversed their housing, the front door is designed to be on the shared green spaces, and the back door is set, very minimally set back from the street, and that's actually supposed to be the service door. So, the third um, neighborhood was with housing designs by Oscar Stanov, who was partnering with a young architect by that name of Louis Kahn. That, uh, and they produce whoop, the, um, the ground-freed units. And they're trying, that the, these units have incredibly strict cost limits that they have to come on under. And they're trying to create more storage space. It is actually why they elevate them a floor. But that's one of their active ideas. And that's what they look like. So ideas why? That anybody wants a hint? The UAW Citywide Housing Committee said no, they want single family houses. They also protested that the, share, the gardens, the place where you would actually grow vegetables, are a shared thing very far from the homes. They didn't like that either. Showing very much, even at this early, what we might think is an early date of suburbia, that the single family house on a fairly a reasonably sized lot is not, just, is not the dream, it's the norm. And this is way too challenging to it. That is. So this is why they're willing to sacrifice it. 
that it, but what, what, what is important for me is to notice for the larger argument here, I just thought it'd be fun to look at the plans. The larger argument is that the Citywide Housing Committee had the right to review the plans, had a right to enter into this negotiation with the federal government. They weren't ever going to get single-family houses. For one thing, that would have been partnering with the private real estate industry, which they had absolutely no interest in doing. But they were in this position of participating in the actual planning of their communities during war. But, uh, story two. Winter 1943. They've spent the whole entire summer of 1942 arguing about what type of housing they're going to have. That, um, and then, so when they start, finally start to build the housing, and the mil this is where the military gums up the work, but once they st finally start to build the housing, it's not going to be ready until summer of 43. They have to make it through the winter. And this is how thousands of them do make it through the winter. And this also echoes that this is families. There's seven children in this photo. That it becomes, the locals in the UIW can be become very concerned about housing crowding, but also of housing people living in tents, people in living trailers, people living in chicken coops, people living in basements. And they probably would not have gotten very far with this, except that the bomber plant starts to struggle. And then you have Fortune magazine, Business Ma Week magazine, Life magazine, all writing articles on what's wrong with Willow Run. And there's this big meeting where the, uh, com the Truman Committee, Senator Truman leads a group in February 43 to the bomber plant to discuss what to do. And they come up with a solution that's just a stopgap solution. But the, the government says, well, you know, there's a state normal college over next door in Ypsilanti. Why don't we close the college and use that as housing? And the Ford says, okay, if that's the best you can do, all right, we'll be supportive of that. This is an example of the local response. And this was published in the newspaper. You should see what they were writing in letters to their senators. <laughs> that. Uh, but it wasn't, it wasn't alone. It wasn't just a protest. They came up with their own solution. The local leaders in Ypsilanti came up with their own solution and said, of a room canvas. And they convinced the Ford Motor Company to use his security force to staff it. And they literally went and knocked on doors. And they were able to turn up 800 rooms, 174 apartments. One does ask why they were able to do that, but they were. And, um, and the federal officials backed off. And they kept the college open. Uh, so, and the other thing they did, and this was a partnership between the local governments and the UAW. And this one, Ford was last to get on board, is that they started moving work away from the plant. They just said this plant cannot handle the area around the plant cannot handle the workforce it needs. The idea is if you can't move the works to the workers, you move the work, workers to the work, move the work to the workers. And they started moving, started the production out of the plant. That Ford, of course, is last on board with this because that's sort of admitting failure. But, and the federal government issues a threat, and this threat becomes important in that later, that all future contracts for the Detroit Willow Run area will receive extra scrutiny because the place is obviously just too stressed out. 
Story three. That um, this is Detroit, as uh, then as now, the race relations was a very key issue for the community. That um, and housing in Detroit, it was segregated. You had certain neighborhoods in Detroit, but you also had certain neighborhoods in the suburbs that housed African Americans. And one of those communities that also housed African Americans was Ypsilanti, that this little community next to the plant. So that. Um, War housing was also segregated. They actually had quotas, and they listed them by white and by black when they built the war housing. And what happens as the war goes on is that the housing crisis for the white war workers starts to ease as it gets more and more severe for, the, for African Americans. And these are African Americans actually working in the war plants, because those, those are the ones who qualify for housing. That, and by late 1943, you have basically vacancies in all the housing that was built for Willow Run and for the rest of Detroit starting to show up as you have severe, severe crowding for the African-Americans because by now, you start the second great migration, that second wave of African-Americans moving out of the South and into the North. Compounded by the Detroit race riot, this is um, June 1943, a hot summer Sunday, that they, this is the only day everybody has off from working in the war plants. That, uh, and as the hot day moves into evening, the gangs of whites and gangs of blacks start attacking each other. It, by time the mayhem is contained, 34 people, both black and white, have died. And the US military has to come in to restore order. And it's interesting for me watching what happens to people who experience this. And so for many of the federal and local officials, some of them become very scared of anything having to do with mixing the races. Their solution becomes just to separate them even more. But some of them become much more aggressive about solving the problems of the African-American community. And that's what leads up to a very strong push to integrate war housing. The NAACP has, of course, been working on this issue since the beginning, but they're getting nowhere. What happens after the race riot and when these severe housing shortages start happening is specific federal officials, actual individuals, start becoming aggressive about this and start supporting it. But what really turns the tide is this group, the Detroit Victory Council. They actually form because of that federal threat earlier. They want to be able to prove to the federal government that Detroit has its act together, that Detroit can accept more contracts. And they include all the key players, except for elected officials. They do not include elected officials. Everybody else. And they include the Detroit Urban League, which is an African-American group, but not the NAACP. Opponents are who you would expect. The local elected leaders, local civic groups, and, other, and then the other federal housing officials. The federal government's not united. So, that, um, so what happens is that these federal officials who are being aggressive start proposing. Let's integrate housing in West Detroit. Locals protest, ugly city hall meetings, the thing fails. Because the federal officials in charge say, OK, we'll do it, because they don't want to do it. So they say, we'll require local consensus. You can bring any local consensus, we'll do it. So they try Detroit. They try Dearborn. They try Ecorse. They're going to fail. They're certain they're going to fail. That's why they set up this thing. You need local consensus. And then they succeed. This is the, 
what is then called the town of Willow Run, and this is the temporary housing. These are very suburban, very, you could, but you can see, you can see actually the old, the site, the site plan was so far along when they switched it to temporary housing, you can actually see some of the street designs in it. That, um, and this is a celebratory headline in the Michigan Chronicle, the local African-American paper. And it is true integration. By 1945, all the three elementary schools are integrated. So anyway, so those are my three stories of participation. <laughs> that, uh, but I want to say it's not all bottom up. Because when, you look, when I look at these, every single one of these is about winning the war. Every single one of these debates is always couched in, will it help win the war? Or will it help stand up for the American values that we are fighting for in this war? Values of, demo of democracy. And very specifically, will it help produce bombers? That, um, and the Willow Run Bomber Plant actually goes ahead and eventually sets production records. That, uh, so this model of participatory planning, which is really, you see it over and over and over again. I only gave you three stories, or four if you count the complete planes or nothing. It's this thing of the federal government comes with a solution and it gets a protest. That the federal government comes up with a proposal and it gets a counterproposal. That the federal government comes up with a problem and it finds a solution. That that's the relationship between the federal government and the American people. That in this sort of the glass half empty, a lot of power politics. It's very political. It's hugely political. It's sometimes only political. That the federal government is very dependent. It's dependent on the private sector. It's dependent on local governments to be able to. That it's full of conflict. Conflict which they found very very uncomfortable. They're thinking they're at war. That. Um, it really preferences status quo power structures up to a certain point. They'll get pushed if they don't cooperate. Really struggles with coordination. That, and it relies on strong leadership from federal and local officials across and private sectors and citizens. Everybody has to participate to make this work. And they would, say, they would tell you it felt like chaos. Agnes Meyer, she was a reporter for the Washington Post. She titled her book about the home front, Journey Through Chaos. So that's the half glass half empty. But the glass half full, which is why a perspective is that, you know, hey, wait a minute. These Americans are all interest-seeking, and it's OK. It harnesses interest-seeking. It tolerates conflict. You can't have a democracy without conflict. That it makes this shared responsibility for generating and implementing solutions. Promotes continuous learning, improvement, innovation as they're all working on how to, everybody is working on how to solve the problems of this bomber plant. That, um, and this may not, this may, depending on your perspective, may actually, this limited approach to centralization, that may be half empty, half full. I put it in the half full, limited approach to centralization. And they, moved, they were able to deliberate and have action. They didn't completely get mired. That I put the strong leadership on both sides, and finally, it worked. That, uh, so I want to close with sort of your thoughts on participatory planning and today. You know, how is, I mean, because this is very different from what we think of as planners as citizen participation or public participation. That, and do you see this type of planning when you are out there in the world working? Is this still going on? 
that, uh, and you see advantages, something worth emulating. But I'll let you sort of model that for a moment. And take, start by taking any, if you have any questions about the actual stories. Yeah, how did you go by about collecting the information and, um, and I guess what was your interest in that, this particular topic? Well, I, I start, my interest started with the model city that I, I, I discovered, I was reading a biography of Walter Ruther and on page 237 there was this model city that I had done all this planning history of and never heard of and that's where it began when I was doing my research for my, for my PhD. That, um, and it's based on archival research. So I spent about a year living in Ypsilanti, going to the different archives. And one of the things about the Willow Run Bomber Plant is everybody knew it was important at the time, so they kept almost every single piece of paper. That, uh, so also I spent a lot of time in the National Archives where you just have folders, Willow Run Bomber Plant. So <laughs> that, uh, and then the press coverage was just, you know, er lots and lots of press coverage. So those were my... And yeah, I guess the final one is the Ford Motor Company is one of the few private companies that has an archi its archives open to the public, at least through 1947. So I was able to look at the internal communications of the top Ford executives. Do you have some aggregate numbers for, I, I think you said the Willow, um, the Willow plant was capable of having 100,000 employees? Oh. At it, some point, but do you have something that mm -hmm. uh, tallies for, in 43 it had so many thousand, right. 44, it, and then it, also it, in each of the years where the, where the workers uh, were domiciled uh, geographically? Yes, the bomber plant tops up because they move work away from the plant. So Ford employment on the plant, Ford employment on the B-24 tops out at 60,000. The bomber plant pops out at 42,000. They get a lot of more efficiency out of the mass production than they think they are going to. And, um, and the peak is actually, the peak of employment is actually right around July of 43, where the peak of production, where they're really hitting the bomber an hour goal, is in later, about a year later in 44. And do you have a geographic representation they as to where coming, those workers are living? About half of them are coming from Detroit, but the other half are coming from the suburbs, and they were coming from up to 50 miles away. So there is some, I've seen it, I don't have examples of you, but the State Highway Department actually mapped every, all the workers at some point and produced a map, and they called it, it was like sifting a salt shaker over the Detroit metropolitan area was the, was the metaphor they used, where they all were coming from. How did they accommodate the, um, the rationing for that much transportation? That um, Ford, um, well, Michigan's late to ration, so they don't, true gasoline rationing doesn't happen until late, 40, late 42. That, um, and what Ford does is it sets up what it calls swap ride programs, and it actually, they, everybody carpooled. Mm -hmm. And, to, and you would get your rationing by how many people you carried in, carried in your car. And there's all sorts of regulations around it. They try to set up bus service, but it, it, because they, are only, they run two shifts instead of three shifts, it actually the buses, always the buses are always complaining that they don't have enough people on them. And Ford is very happy because it's doing swap rides, which it thinks is a better solution than buses. So, but. 
Uh, I was curious, uh, did any of the housing that was built on a temporary basis uh, evolve into permanent housing a afterwards? That um, There was 5,000 units actually built. Half of them were built as permanent housing, some of which has been redeveloped, some of which still is housing today. That, um, and then the 2,500 units of these, and this is family housing, they also built dormitories and trailer parks and things like that, but the 2,500 units of temporary housing was lived in and was finally redeveloped in the, the, the last resident moved out in 1961. Is the Willow Run plan, the community plan still extant? Is it the basis for that community? Some of the roads are. If you, the, some of the main roads, some of those, the, the local streets, not. The local streets for redevelopment, but the main roads, you can still see them on the map. So I'd love to get some thoughts on participatory planning, because this is, this is what I've sort of, I, I got the history case study, but I, I just want to think about it in terms of today and some ideas. And to throw out a sort of starter question, I presented this in to, um, I presented this at a planning academic conference and a woman from Sweden, we were chatting afterwards and she said, oh, so the federal government was, trying, was do, using empowerment. They were trying to empower these people. And I was like, oh, that was the last thing on the federal government's mind. <laughs> that was so far from their conception of what they were doing in many ways. They, I mean, in many ways, they assumed that people had this capability and that they were going to be partners. That, uh, Well, in, in the pursuing the war effort, it, the, the government was trying to organize. It's an organizing effort. Mm -hmm. And to my mind, this is the first evidence of participatory... Well, you know, we are well aware of participatory planning now as planning professionals. It's what we do. We facilitate. But this was the first time where I think you've had this, all these different communities being brought together around planning issues. Before then, uh, planning was very laissez-faire. That, yes and no. I mean, from the history standpoint, but I think, yes, that they, there, was, there was a surprising capacity for people to engage in this, considering that this was not something that professional planners thought that they were supposed to be doing. Um, well, I'm a federal employee myself, and... I would say probably today the federal government would not defer as much to local and state. I mean, I don't know if you just think about recently the developments along 95 and those relocate, I don't know. It seems like they decided where they want to go and then the community had to figure it out, yeah. I'll just throw that out for discussion. Yeah. That's great. <laughs> I'm only familiar with this is too loud I'm only familiar with station area planning and particularly in the Los Angeles region the last few years and I feel as though the federal government is very hands off and comes at the end sweeping to provide funding for something that has already been 90% done and has achieved all local input because of federal regulation, sure, but the actual funding bit comes in at the very end after all the messy details are that the local politics are taken care of. 
maybe they learn from this experience. But and the sort of local planning is hyper-local and you know, public involvement in charrettes and literally people putting different elements of a station plan on different parts of a map in front of other planners was very bottom-up, but I mean, it, the actual public involvement is questionably taken into what comes into a plan. So you actually do see some of this in the sense of, well, actually what you're describing is sort of some of the downside of this is because when it becomes so local, locally driven bottom-up, there's nobody looking at the bigger picture. Sure. <laughs> that if the federal government just... And that actually is one of the... the this idea that the federal government should, co should fund compete competitive plans and that the local governments have to compete for federal money comes right out of this World War II. That's when they first start having to learn how to compete, and they catch on very, very quickly on how to do that. The houses were essentially late to need anyway because they were trying to produce planes and it would have been more ideal if the houses had been there before. Did this planning process extend the time that it took to get the houses there versus the federal government and Ford deciding here's where we're going to put houses, you know, get them started right away? Uh, yeah, spending your summer construction season in Michigan, arguing about the future of suburbia, I would, did, did did delay the housing. That they that the thing I mean, and they, they you could actually point blank blame the process, except for that the military is also trying to halt all housing at the same time. So even if they had gotten, even if even if it had been very very top down, or the, they had come to consensus much earlier, the military would have still been messing things up. So they were going to lose the summer construction season anyway. But yes. This delayed, the plan had been that that housing would have been ready for the, the ideal plan had the housing ready for the winter of 43, and it was not. So, I mean, another downside is, of course, this process takes time. I think that they're moving amazingly quickly, but time still is actually their biggest enemy. What was the reason behind, what was the reason behind Ford pulling up the stakes? Why was he just so adamant against he the, wasn't he the that's why I said as I said only known to Ford's mind is there's a lot of debate about what he was thinking well not a lot of debate because there's a lot of debate about whether he's senile and so they the company doesn't know why he does this he just does it it hits the you know New York Times and then they have to defend it but that's a very typical Henry Ford Ford Motor Company relationship where he's off doing his own thing and the company has to kind of run to keep up so that uh. well, I guess in answer to the first bullet, I, I guess I, my thought is that certainly public participation is very different today, precisely, I think, because of an example like this one. However, if we were in a situation where we'd have to mobilize quickly, like they had to, um, it, it, we could easily have another situation in a community like this one because, you know, we had a, it was the war effort and we had to produce bombers. And so that, that push, I think, um, would, you know, I think we, we might easily forget the lessons that we learned in this situation. 
So, well, one of sort of my closing sort of thought is one of the things that I've thought about is what would it look like if we use this for climate change? That's sort of a closing thought question to, for people to think about or ask about. Barbara? Yeah, that's, uh, that's, that's a good question because I, I think my, one of the overarching uh, issues to me is that they did have this clear, very central goal of winning the war and, that, and producing all of these, this, these goods and these planes in order to win the war. And I don't think we have anything even close to that consensus on any issue. Uh, and it was still chaotic, right? Even with that unity of, of purpose. So, yeah. so if we could get to that with climate change, maybe there's hope, I guess. But I think, I think it would always feel like chaos. I, didn't, I actually try not to say it was chaos, but it certainly felt like chaos. And they never really found a good solution to that, other than sort of wishing it was over. Any other thoughts? I, I think that's true of politics, right? Any political process feels chaotic. <laughs> so one last announcement. If you've picked up the flyer, that's, from, that's a gift from the University of Chicago Press with a discount code on the back. So if you are interested, although I think it, even with the discount code, it might be a little bit cheaper on Amazon. That, but it does apply for the ebook too. So that if you are interested in learning more. I think as far as the first question, in my mind, everything that has happened at Willow Run, um, as far as public participation, has always been reactionary as opposed to um, initiatory. Um, so during, during the war, I mean, none, none of this would have happened. None of this would have happened unless there was that, that goal from the national goal. None of this would have happened unless the catalyst of the bomber plant being there. Um, and that's true today as well, that you know, I had the bounty of working for four months on a, on a proposal um, for the Willow Run area um, currently. And the, 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 the question is still the same, that the public participation is only a second thought. It's, it's the big economic, it's searching for the big economic driver um, to, to, to catalyze the transformation of this area and then inviting the public participation to come in, um, which is, again, there's so many stakeholders involved that it's, it's almost nominal. Um, but it's, it's, I wish it were more of ground up as opposed to top down. So. Right. If there's no other questions, then uh, if you could please join me in thanking Sarah Jo for tonight's presentation. Thank you.